that building full of bright, I dreamt that I was with the devil below in his great big fiery hall, where the devil was giving a ball. I checked my coat and hat and started gazing at the merry crowd who came to witness the show, and I must confess to you, there were many there I knew. Welcome to The Dispatches, a friendly conversation about eternal damnation. I'm Jacob. I'm Victoria. I'm Jamin. So, news from hell this week. I had seen a really cute little video game. It's called Hell Sports, and it is adorable. I think it's coming out in January. It's got to be the cutest game about hell for this semester. It's adorable. Cuter than Helltaker? Did you see pictures? <laughs> I did. I watched the preview. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. It was so freaking cute. It's yeah. It's, yeah. Mm-hmm. it's like Hello wow. Kitty meets Satan and with like Wii graphics type things. But <gasps> yeah, I think you're one of like eight low level Lords of Hell sort of things. And you're trying to protect your set of sinners while wiping out and abusing your opponent's sinners. And Hell has become a spectator sport. Which I think is theologically sound. That makes I think sense. so too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't understand any of it. Yeah, I like that you are protecting your sinners. Well, you know? it's not really nurturing. It's more like territory and like the way wolverines eat food. Like harvesting your sinners, like harvesting yeah. souls. Yeah, you know, you save a sinner today for tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Have <laughs> a sinner, leave a sinner, need a sinner, take a sinner. Right, right, right. That. I didn't understand any of it because it was in Japanese and I do not speak Japanese, even very cheerful Japanese. I do not speak, but I loved seeing little imps destroying sinners while the sort of extremely perky female Japanese voice cheered me on. It was, it was nice. It was a, a meditation on something. <laughs> on the banality of evil. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe that or the, the pop culturalism of evil. The adorableness uh, of evil. Evil is really cute, uh, particularly in, no, I was going to say particularly in Japan, but I just saw this other game where you're playing Pokemon Go, but with these terrible sex demons and it's, <laughs> what? It's less, less wholesome, let's say. We'll say that. What's the name uh-huh. of that one? Wow. Yeah, this one did see, didn't appear to have any sex demons. No. Uh, what is the name of that sex demon game? Which one? <laughs> There's so many. <laughs> have, have you never been to Japan? <laughs> I mean, technically, if, when done right, Twister's a sex demon game. I'm going to search sex demon game on my work computer. <laughs> That's not a problem, right? Do it. <laughs> also in hell news, cedar pollen is super high in Austin right now, and everybody is dead. Yes. Yeah. We're zombies. It, it mm-hmm. was like it was like death. Uh, if we all lose our voice halfway through recording, it's the yellow cedar trees. Oh Today, this morning is the first morning I woke up, and like it, it's been you know a series of not sleeping and whining and crying like weak person who doesn't have faces. But it's like today is the first day that it cumulatively hit, and I was like, ugh, I'm exhausted from nature. Yes. Mm-hmm. This is the time of year where nature just punches us in the face repeatedly. Right in the face. Wait, I found the demon cane. Oh, good. Link it. I want to see pictures. Open new incognito window. It's a Sega game for mobiles. It's called Shin Megami Tensai Liberation. And it kind of feels a little like, I don't know what it feels like, but you dive into kind of the secret society that summons various demons and mythy creatures and goes to battle with them. But it's um, like some of them look like weird, crazy demons made out of things that H.R. Giger kind of would have put on the side. Like there's this mm-hmm. lovely lady with, with six huge purple chest regions and flailing tentacles of tentacleness and another kind of lion guy that's wrapped around in a phallic-looking snake. And it's it's really very... There's like a giant penis squid monster kraken. Yeah, I don't know what's going on. Anyway, it's it's DX2 Shin Megami Tensei Liberation, JRPG style turn-based mobile game. Wow. Very interesting graphics. There's a bit of a deep dive going on there that I'm not I'm not emotionally ready for in my life. 
in Google Images, uh, once you type Shin Megami Tensei Liberation, the recommended filters are Pixie, Angel, Alice, Mermaid. Look up Tyrant Mara, M-A-R-A. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's Mara right there. Wow. Okay. I'm, I, I'm not looking this up on my work computer. No, I'm sorry I sent you all down this magical rabbit hole. Um, I think this may be for laters for me. <laughs> yeah. That is a penis squid from hell. Wow. It was actually funnier. I'm, I'm <laughs> almost tempted, but I don't think the irony is going to be there to sustain me. There's a good lion Pazuzu, though. He's kind of cute. I like the just big, like big penis cracking. I mean, it's a foregone conclusion. You're going to have a penis cracking. Well, how many weeks of play does it take to acquire your first one? Hmm. Just everybody remembers their first penis cracking. <laughs> May not be your best penis cracking, but. But it is a demon summoning game and it is, it is pretty and bizarre. Um, don't play it with your 12 year old cousin though, for sure. <laughs> Cause he'll beat you. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, unless that cousin's seen some things. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I don't have kids today. Mean streets and all. Um, I, I feel like yellow cedar trees should feature more heavily in Dante's Inferno than they do. Ooh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Like they should be like outside the walls of Dis, making everybody miserable. Mm-hmm. Saw some teasers for Wonder Woman 1984. Looks really cute. One thing I'm really excited about in this movie is the cool Sandman tie-in. It's May or may not be subtle, depending on if you've read the Sandman comics. But fairly major plot point, I understand, is that Wonder Woman gets her hands on the Dreamstone, which features prominently in Sandman number six, 24 hours. One of the most altogether dark and morbid comics that has ever been published. Hmm. I'm excited about that. I am, too. While, while Googling around for this, though, I stumbled across a fan film called 24 Hour Diner by the Great Auk, and it looks like virtually frame by frame translation of 24 hours into a short fan film what? and more I, I mean there's some animated sequences like flash animation instamatic type stuff and morpheus is really nice looking he's got like perfect greasy black hair and a dead face with these black pits of eyes they do a good job on him oh wow that's one of the most memorable stories it, it, it is and i think that uh -huh. that those first 10 issues were going to be maybe the, the foundation of the Sandman movie whenever that was made. Yeah. And that is a really, a really strong one, though. I think oh, my gosh. OK, I'm going to have to. Yeah. Wow. OK. I both want to watch that and I don't want to watch that. <laughs> no. It, it's it's not going to add anything new to your life. It's like frame by frame from the comic. OK. But wow. it's it's loving. Okay, yeah, that one is, that was one of those moments where I realized, like, this is genius, and this is also very disturbing, and it will stay with me forever. That's an appropriate response to that series. Mm-hmm. Did anybody bring anything to the party? I did. Since we're talking about urban legends, I brought a Bloody Mary, and specifically because... Oh. I see Just what you did one? there. Or did you bring you three? See, you see what I did there? You see what it, it, it gets better. Cause you know, bloody Mary's vary from region to region, vary from maker to maker. There's always some new garnish you can put on it. Right. I see. With yeah. Just the, the minor standard. variations. Yep. Mm -hmm. There's always so like, you can, you totally riff on a bloody Mary. As long as you have got some vodka or gin or tequila, um, some kind of white liquor, you have some kind of tomato-based juice, whether it be tomato juice, Clamato, or beef amato. Szechuan peppercorns. Szechuan peppercorns, regular black pepper. You can add Tabasco, Worcestershire, like the sky's the limit. Every Bloody Mary is different and unique to its maker. And also the origins of the Bloody Mary, nobody really knows where it came from. So hmm. there you go. Sometimes you can add raw oysters. That's a thing. Do you have a favorite of this vast family of minor variations? Let me I try that again. I do. I do. I do. It's actually called an angry red planet. And <laughs> the secret here is horseradish. Oi. It's all mm. about the horseradish. It is so good. And you have to like muddle, you muddle lime juice, horseradish, and garlic together. And then you add that to the tomato juice and the vodka and then you garnish with olives. That's my favorite hands down. 
that's a morning after Bloody Mary, if anything. Like, yep, mm-hmm. it almost sounds wow. healthy. Yeah, it's really good. And the other favorite one that I had was uh, uh, I don't even know if Opal Divine still exists in any form, but they used to make a Bloody Mary with sun dried tomato infused vodka that was outstanding. Mm. Mm-hmm. I love a Bloody Mary, and you have to say it three times, and then you know. Then the waiter what understands appears, what appears in your hands. You use a mirrored glass. That's, that's the key. Right. You say, yeah. Oh my gosh! See, that's an innovation that I've yet mm. to see. Mm. Ah. That'll that'll go in the merch store. Dispatches like mirrored Mary highball. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice, nice. Well, I brought something pretty mundane today. I bought it from the store. I know, I know. Some people were saying, you know, Jamin, you're just making some weird things. So. Jacob and I were at 99 Ranch Market, and I actually sent you guys a picture uh, in the in the telegram. So this is Happy Star brand. They're corn crackers, and you can get chips or crisps and, you know, cheddar or ranch or sour cream and poodle, whatever. But and mm-hmm. these are perfectly normal for sale crackers. They're salted egg yolk flavor. Mm-hmm. Salted egg yolk chips. Mm-hmm. And the branding is a little smiling happy duck. And so I'm not going to make anything up. This is a real product you can buy on the shelf. Guys, help yourself. Have a handful. Salted egg yolk chips. Mm. They weren't bad. Om nom. Tastes like babies. (laughs) Usually your stuff comes across as fictional. This also comes across as fictional. But it's right there on the shelf. Yeah. Look in the show notes. The brined french fries. We're going to. I'm excited to make those. Uh, Yeah, that's that's a project. So I brought some entertainment tonight. Being infested with countless birds while being chained in a red-hot pit that echoes with the screaming of the damned forever, along with the suicides and flatterers. Ooh, that seems on the nose. The suicides and the flatterers. Yeah, I mean, together you get variations on perspectives. Hmm. I think this will be rewarding forever. (laughs) Just this cycle of compliments and sadness. Yeah, and birds. And birds. Birds. Let's talk urban legends. I think the topic that brought us down this road was the Russian hole to hell, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, because I think I sent you guys, for some crazy reason, the um, Coast to Coast uh, link, the Mm -hmm. uh, old uh, talk show um, with the guy who would have people who are UFO conspiracy theorists and yeah. whatnot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's just right now play, let's say, three seconds of the screaming of the damned. It's horrible. It really is. Like, I actually, the first time I heard it, I was alone. It was like three in the morning because this was when I was writing my dissertation and I would reward myself by trying to find the scariest and creepiest things that I could find on the internet. And (laughs) this was one of the things that it actually sort of affected me at three in the morning because I was so tired. It seems like the best hour for that show and that kind of mindset. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, definitely. So Art Bell, he seemed to make a game of like blurring fact and fiction and making this kind of studio of the mind sort of thing a lot. And I imagine at 3 a.m. when your mind is kind of melting from sleep depth, it was really a nice place to be mentally or scary. One of the two. It was like the perfect. It was exactly what I was looking for at that moment. Indeed. Yeah. So Art got a letter from a reader, listener, listener, reader, saying that he had heard about the sounds from hell clip and that his listener's uncle had heard the sounds himself, had a recording of them. And that's where the tape surfaced because his uncle had these audio tapes of these sounds from hell in Russia and sent them in. And then there was the screaming and the noise and things like that. And I think that art probably gave this story the big circulation that it needed in like 2009. And the, I don't have the thing, the actual scientific process, it was 94 or was it 04? I think it was nineties, right? Yeah. It was like 94, not actually in Siberia, actually Closer to Finland. But hey, you know, border facts. Yeah, the, the Kona Peninsula. So yeah, it ran from 1970 through... Oh, the 70s. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Again, very close to the moon race, period-wise. It ran from 70 to 89 and is the deepest point on... The deepest artificial point on Earth at like seven and a half miles deep. There's some pictures of it online now. You can kind of see the cap 
on it. It's about the size of a pizza plate. This hole is a, maybe eight or ten inches wide at the outside. It's fairly small. Nine. It's nine inches. Personal pan, nine inches. <laughs> That's an important metric. Like, it's yeah. the size of a personal pan pizza. If we're, yeah. if we're talking pizza sized, you know, we got we got to clarify what size. Well, and all Hellmouths should be measured in pizza, pizza? slices. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And... Really, as we go, as and we'll go back to kind of the whole art bell and this whole how this got circulated through so many venues and how it was all wrong. The actual project, they had an actual scientist lower a microphone down, and she heard stuff. It was this kind of tectonic popping bleh and they were like hey look guys yeah the sounds of the earth are like and it wasn't hell but it's the fact that somebody is like oh you stuck a microphone down a deep hole and you heard something obviously satan well there's a really appealing note to this story and i think it's what makes it just strong as an urban legend is that it pits the scientist atheists against religion and that's Mm. really powerful so mm-hmm. what's the story? People lower a microphone down a seven-mile pit. They hear the screaming of hell. And there's a second verse where an apparition of Satan appears. And it says, I have conquered in Russian, burning these letters into snow nearby. Uh, and everybody's brains were wiped out by the sedatives that the Russian medics gave them to ease their memories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the extended dance mix. So... What happened was the scientist said, we did a science and we heard something we didn't understand. And what was interpreted was obviously hell. Well, Uh not not quite. A few resources I've read say that there's a Finnish magazine called Amanuistasia, Amanuistasia, which ran this story as kind of a a joke almost as, as a fiction. And then that got that got lost in translation a little bit when it jumped to America or Russia. I don't know where it jumped, but it jumped out of its context and became a real news story that got circulated by the 700 club and then expanded by actual eyewitnesses who made up stuff. And they've confessed that later on. Uh, It's all part of the fun. That's interesting because yeah, there was the guy who said he went on the Trinity broadcast network and was surprised that they were taking the story seriously because he was like, I made all this up. Yeah, well, like the Trinity Trinity Broadcasting called him up for a statement or something, and he he gave him one. Uh Uh-huh. Giant luminous gas plumes in the shape of winged demon and things. It kind of reads to me like a chick tract, you know? Like it has that same kind of narrative arc of unbelievers being terrified into belief, right? And it's very graphic. It lends itself to this kind of very sensationalist, depiction of hell and the devil and you know just like it's terrifying like it's right under our feet and Hmm. if you dig too deep you're gonna fall in there well inevitably yeah Mm -hmm. i did kind of experience this one in the real world sort of i used to collect the weekly world news oh with the like what was it bat boy or yeah bat boy that's the one (laughs) that's no longer in print but it's still on the web i love that Uh uh-huh but in 92 uh when i was in high school is that right in 92, I was in college. No, um, I graduated from college. I was post-college. I was. In, I think I was in middle school then. Not that it really matters. Um, that's when they published their article, Satan Escapes from Hell. 13 Alaskan oil workers killed when the devil roars out of a well. And you see this picture of this black smoky plume coming up from an oil rig with Satan embossed into it somehow. <laughs> and then Good branding. They, that's yeah, how that happens. Yeah, right. Yeah. Then they, they re-ran the story but made it more topical in 2008. Because it had Sarah Palin, the governor of Alaska, saying, no, we don't. We've got to stand up for ourselves and keep drilling versus Joe Biden, who is saying, oh, we don't know about the long term environmental effects, let alone the biblical ones. <gasps> mm. So they kind of put it in the the uh-huh. then topical Palin versus Biden arguments there. I have a merch idea. Yes. Can we make T-shirts with Sarah Palin on and that say I, that she can see hell from her house? It's it's a bit dated. <laughs> I don't know what the cedars are like in Alaska, but <laughs> maybe a sticker. I don't know if a shirt, I think a sticker. definitely a I sticker. Think it's a retro appeal, yeah. you know, sort of like people yeah. still have where's the beef stickers. So, <laughs> I mean, or a fridge magnet. You can... How about a mouse pad to really just kind of round out the whole. 
there's another element to the Kola Peninsula mineshaft story that makes it, I think, really compelling as a specifically as a hell narrative. Uh, and that is that both in the original and in the Weekly World News version, hell is over there somewhere. Mm, um, uh-huh, uh-huh. And you know, going back to the Bible, hell is always about 500 miles north of here or some unpassable distance away from here. It's in a real place that a friend of a friend of a friend could have visited, but you never have. And that's pretty true both in the Alaska version and in the Kona Peninsula version as well. Bunch of nimbies. <laughs> According to YouTube, the story is still being kept alive by David Guberman, by David Guberman, the project manager for the mine sh- for the original shaft, who likes to kind of recount the sounds of hell story just for funsies. On the topic of hell. Yes. On to this borehole, the bureaucratic hell that actually killed this project. Mm. Mm-hmm. There was a one year gap when they were like, okay, guys, you said 79, we're working, we're working, we're drilling, we're doing like solid science. Okay, budgets, bureaucracy, everyone go home, we're gonna do some fundraising, we're gonna do some pitching. You leave stuff unattended and unmaintained for a year in North Finland, North Russia, and stuff's gonna, like, that's what, that's what happened to this project. If we, if it had been going for nonstop, they'd still be drilling now, because, like, the WD-40 would get sprayed, and the torques would be torqued and stuff, but it was unmaintained for a year, and then everything broke. Yeah, and then the Soviet Union collapsed. Oh, that's what it was, yeah, I forgot about that. Mm Mm-hmm, because it was in the late 80s. Yeah, so... Obviously, cover up. Wow, there's so much going on here because there's also what was it the um, sort of Sputnik angle of trying to just have the the deepest hole. Like this was a, it's just a goal to have it to to have the deepest hole. Yeah, kind of another another race. This one down, not up. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. One kind of neat thing that I heard about on YouTube is that the core samples they took, or the core samples, not even mantle samples, the the, the seven mile down samples had a whole lot of the characteristics of moon rock. Really? Yeah. And there's the theory that the moon kind of broke away from the earth. And the similarity of these rocks kind of suggests that maybe the moon was like a part of Russia originally or thereabouts. I mean, Russia might not have existed at the time. Probably didn't. But this kind of tapped into a portion of the world that was where the moon was torn from and kind of shows this kind of cosmic connection. That's that's pretty neat. Yeah. Ooh, I love the idea. I, I love core samples. That's a, a weird side fascination I have. Did y'all ever watch David Reese, Going Deep with David Reese on, Na- I think it was on National Geographic, but there was one where he did like Arctic ice samples of like thousand of year, like year old ice. Mm-hmm. And he said that like there was some pure, like pure water without any mm-hmm. trace elements that just tasted like ghosts. Tasted like ghosts. How do you compare? Don't have we all tasted a ghost? I mean, probably somewhere in our psyche, we know what a ghost tastes like. Just like I, it's our inter- like we are we are just we are pre ghost right now, so we must know what they taste like. We're both pre and post ghost at any given moment. They say the average American consumes three point seven ghosts during their sleep every year. Oh, yeah. And like, isn't there some kind of allowance for ghost materials and all manufacturing? Of oh, absolutely. Products? Yeah. Yeah. So like, it, like, like trace elements of ghosts are in everything you eat. Yeah. <laughs> 10% Casper by weight. <laughs> <laughs> Is he kosher? Parv? Ghosts don't have feet. They just have a little trailing down cheat thing. Therefore, uh-huh. it doesn't matter if they have cloven hooves or not. Therefore, ghosts are kosher. And, okay. hal- and halal. Okay. If anybody knows a rabbi that can answer this for us, we'd appreciate I know a that. Rabbi, I'm going to ask my rabbi friend. I will find out about ghosts. Thank you, Victoria. <laughs> um, can we talk poetry? Sure. I was reading up on Tamino's Hell, and this is kind of a Japanese urban legend in the style of the Ring movie a bit. Mm. There's an element of Japanese horror where you just die. I mean, you're not really innocent. You're neither good nor bad. You're just going to die. It's like the inevitability of a horrible death is a thing in Japanese horror, which is kind of beautiful and different from the like moral judgment of Western horror. I agree. I, and I have to say, like, I find Japanese horror way more terrifying. Oh, uh, like I had yeah. to take to my bed after seeing the ring. Yeah. 
the book is really good if you haven't read it yet. Uh, Ooh, it goes okay. into a lot more detail to kind of elaborate on what the thing in the well really was. Oh, okay. In, in I may that. have to take to my bed again. It's good. It's a good kind of procedural horror novel. Okay. If that's a genre. All right. All right. So Tomino's Hell, it kind of feels like that. This is a poem that was written in 1919, Japanese, by Seijo Yaso, who was a poet that worked on lyrics and children's books and things like that. And according to the urban legend, uh, if you read this poem, you will die or get very sick or meet with misfortune. That covers a lot of sins, actually, there. That covers a lot. Wait, and, wait. When did you first read this poem? And when did cedar pollen start happening? Because if this <gasps> was you... No, I have... I have not yet read this poem aloud. Okay. I was thinking of doing that for today's episode, but I have an important medical appointment next week, and I don't mm-hmm. want to jinx this. Okay. And that, that's just sensible. Yeah, that's I think just so. sensible. Yeah. Uh, it is worth saying that the poet himself wrote the poem in 1919 and died in the 50s, I think. So chances are it's not really a valid urban legend. It, it kind of started to gain traction in 80, 83, I guess. Well, this one grows in phases. In 74, a Japanese director... Terayama Suji made a movie called uh, Pastoral to Die in the Countryside. He's a fairly colorful, somewhat surreal director, and he made this movie and then died later. In 2004, a writer, Yomata Inhiko, writes about this poem in a book. He says that he kind of sums up the entire urban legend of it. If you read this, you will die in a few days. And he talks about uh, some other people that read it, that sort of thing. That book being written in the internet era, that made it circulate. That kind of brought it up as a, as a common internet legend, urban legend sort of thing. And it started getting some traction there. As it happened, the director did die after making this poem into a movie or adapting this poem into a movie in parts. Uh, but he died like seven years later of cirrhosis of the liver. And so it, direct link, no, probably not. But it's a neat poem as well. Um, I mean, it's pretty strong. I don't, I mean, I can't even approach it in Japanese at all. But it's an interesting vision. Um, The main character, Tomino, is a young boy who gives up his treasure and his soul, in a sense, while listening to the rage and screaming and pain of his sisters. And then he descends into hell. There's some hazy kind of, maybe it's been interpreted as incest, or forbidden love, that sort of thing. But looking towards the end of the poem, and I'd recently read a book on the Japanese wars in World War II and against China that kind of alluded to this is um, there's this tradition of like a hero's scarf sewn with red stitches from well-wishing women. A thousand sewn from different women. Yeah. Yeah. Along those lines, always a thousand in Japanese mythology. Mm -hmm. This lucky scarf, it's called, uh, what is it called? The Sinibari scarf. Mm -hmm. Sinibari. They mentioned they allude to that at the end of the poem. So it sounds like this poem is possibly more about the horrors of war as made into a hellscape. And he passes through seven gates, um, seven, again, very strong hell number. And I think he's ultimately lost in the story and lost in the kind of the chaos of this poem. But it's a, it's a good poem. I'm going to read some of it, not all of it. And it's going to give me heartburn. Um, <laughs> Through the seven mountains and seven valleys of hell, the cute Tomino's solo journey. If they're in hell, bring them the mountains of pins and needles. The red pins don't stand up as a sign leading to cute Tomino. Um, I'll link to the full poem. It's it's pretty cool. It's 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 well done. Um, I thought the podcast was really interesting. About yeah, it. yeah. There's mm-hmm. a a podcast that makes a deep dive into this into the cursed poem. Mm-hmm. And it's also, I've just it made me think about other cursed films, like The Exorcist, as the other most well-known cursed film. All I know about it is there were some director's cuts that were missing and then were restored and that weirded people out. And they are weird cuts, but I don't know about the, the haunting of this one. Nine people died. Really? From the exorcist. Yes. So including, um, the guy who played Burke Dennings, Jack McGowan is the actor. Linda Blair's grandfather died. A night watchman died. A night watchman from the set and a special effects expert died. Well, so yeah, I mean, special mm-hmm. effects experts—that they have short lifespans. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Like they're disposable, really. Yeah. I mean, they're they come they come actually in a like like on a flat. Like they're all kind of like linked together with those little 
things that hold beer cans together and oh, you exactly. just kind of like go through them, right? That's Listen, horrible. Mm-hmm. I, I, need, I need you to set this can of propane on fire because we need it in the background. Go. Number seven. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They all wear red shirts. It's, it's <laughs> yes. A... Yes. Mm-hmm. So I know you said urban legends and I was like, urban legends on hell? This is great. I've got one. It's the Jersey Devil. And you were like... I love it. Let's go. No, that's not what you said. You you lied. To- <laughs> Come on, man. You had one job. Okay, okay, okay. I think that cryptozoology is not demonology. And I also have occasionally said the devil is a little off topic for us, which is a bizarre statement, I know. But together, these things add up to, I don't know about this one, but... Look. It's an urban legend, and he's called the frickin' Jersey Devil. Where Jersey Devil's from? Jersey, which is hell. Joyzy. Joyzy. I'm sorry. <clears throat> Joyzy. Like Moylan. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's like, this is hoofprints on snowy roof? No, that's England. Oh. The Jersey oh. Devil is just this thing which small children would scare other smaller children with in the past. Is it like in the Mothman genealogy? Hmm. I always associated with Mothman, like in that kind of oeuvre. Yeah. yeah the, the leaping cryptid. Well, it's like any any cryptid. Bigfoot, the... Loch Ness Monster. Loch Ness Monster. Oh, the Chupacabra. Yes, Chupacabra is totally... But the Jersey Devil, like for crying out loud, it's an urban legend. Children used to scare other children with it. And it's the devil. Like, minimal research. Jamin goes home and goes to bed. see you don't work harder you work smarter yes so there's the the child of the witch idea that um mother Leeds had 13 children and 13th one was gonna be the devil and it was it's a flying hoofed goat-headed thing the story had been kind of established by like the 1800s and that's another thing can it be an urban legend if there wasn't really like a full-on city i don't know where did okay so yeah what was the what was the civic infrastructure like in what was New Jersey what what cities what what city in New Jersey there were Quakers that's all I know okay are you saying that you're applying the modern definition of urban to early Jersey Jersey timeline you're saying like the standards of today apply to the past no the Definition of urban, suburban, and rural, they didn't have those words. But if they did, they would apply differently. It's like, look, guys, we've got seven houses and a post office. This is a major metropolis. Uh There was a burst of Jersey Devil encounters in 1909. Someone said they found a corpse of something resembling the devil in 1957 in Pennsylvania. I don't know. Oh, no, Jersey. Okay. So it does recur. It's definitely like there's a cryptid line here that goes up to the 60s. Yeah, totally. And as a Texan, all those tiny New England states, they're so tiny, they might as well all be the same thing. It's like, come on. Mm-hmm. Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. Yeah. Jersey, Delaware, who knows? It's tiny. <laughs> mm-hmm. So let's see, what is this thing? Uh, Wiki says a bipedal kangaroo or wyvern type thing with a horse-like head, costly goat horns, bat-like wings, small, kind of Tyrannosaurus Rex hands, cloven hooves, and a forked tail. And it screams. Everything good screams in this world. So all he does is like walk around his ineffectual hands screaming? (laughs) Yeah. You know, at 3 a.m. that'd be really annoying. (laughs) (laughs) I, I kind of feel for the Jersey Devil. It doesn't seem like he's attacked people, but he's been blamed for livestock killing once or twice. Mm. Is it a vampire, like kind of like the Chupacabra where he's sort of vampiric? I don't know. He's pretty creepy looking. Well, if that's a sin, I'm going to hell, damn it. Yeah, well. <laughs> With the creepy looking or the vampiric attacks on livestock? Uh, I plead the fifth. <laughs> <laughs> He didn't look so fierce. No, that's really. a very, there's a very amiable looking picture of him from the Philadelphia Bulletin, 1909. He looks kind of cuddly mm-hmm. in a like emaciated, creepy, don't get anywhere near me sort of way. 
Oh, Which in some I've, cases he has horns. I've owned a Mexican hairless and, you know, that's the yeah. emotion that we have. I was going to say, like, we, we've had a dog like that. Yeah. We loved Aww. him. Yeah. He was a chupacabra, actually. There's Truth. a photograph. Somebody claimed to have photographed him. And he's sort of flying. And which is kind of like, I wish I could make my, I wish my cats had little horns and wings like this. And I wish they could fly like maybe just like one foot off the ground. Yeah. Man claims to have photographed mythical New Jersey devil. What year? What year is that? ABC News. 2015. Oh. Yeah, yeah. see? Oh my God, that's ridiculous. Totally mm-hmm. relevant. Okay, well, the Jersey Devil still lives and can be seen on ABC oh. News. Mm-hmm. Man says he witnessed the creature sprout wings and begin to fly. Magic. It's sort of like, a, what is the, well, you know, Loch Ness, and then there's another lake monster in Vermont. I don't know. I sort of do like cryptozoology, clearly. Sorry, I know we're, that's not really on topic. <laughs> Bigfoot. Oh, that video is just ridiculous. <laughs> it is. And there's also one in, um, in our very own state. There's a lake monster in North Texas. Caddo Lake also holds monsters, which I totally get. The, I was just about to say, like, having lived in the Caddo Lake region, the monsters we have are catfish. They're like, yes, catfish are terrifying. Thousand pound catfish sighted in Lake Caddo by fishermen. And I'm like, okay. I mean, it's it's not a monster if you can bread and fry it. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, exactly. Snap. I love this kind of a definitional argument. If you can bread. So your criteria are if it's a thing that could be breaded and fried, it is not a monster. Yes. That's why it's the Loch Ness visitor. (laughs) Because <laughs> Scotland really knows like how to fry. This. Let me. I am. I'm completely on board with this. Let me possibly amend this: breaded, fried, and enjoyed. Oh, because no. there are things you can bread and fry and not enjoy. Yeah, not many. So maybe that's a maybe not a. Is that a necessary or accidental criteria for a lock necessary? <laughs> Important criterion: a monster cannot be breaded, fried, and enjoyed. Like breaded, fried eel. <laughs> Probably not delicious. Breaded, fried, long tentacled ocean squid. Definitely pretty, delicious. No, ca- good. calamari, so, yeah, delicious. Kraken, not yeah. a monster. Oh, oh, kraken, yeah. not a monster. Leviathan, not a monster. Can be fried. Let's let's talk about York County. <laughs> York County, Texas. What's in York County? What's in York County? Well, probably nothing. But the story is that outside of Hellam Township. H-E-L-L-A-M township in Pennsylvania. There's a, there's a probably abandoned mental institution. And if you go there, there are seven gates in the area and walking through them all will send you to hell. And this is a pretty darn popular urban legend. I think it turns up high on the list of like Hellmouth searches. It definitely does. It's definitely in the Fodor's top 10 Hellmouths to visit before you die. Hmm. Yeah, it's got a nice body of mythology built up, too. There's the version that on uh, Toad Road or Trout Run Road, there was a mental institution that was burned down in the 1900s. Some patients escaped, but they were beaten to death by search parties. And seven barriers were built along the path to the asylum, and going through them took you on a, a path to hell. Version two, an eccentric physician built gates along a deep path into the forest, and only one of them is visible during the day. The other six can be seen at night only. No one has ever passed this fifth gate, or at least no one has returned from the fifth gate. And Hellam Township is named after hell. There's another story, which is on roadtrippers.com. They say that in 1950-ish, a man murdered his wife and children and impaled their corpses on the spikes of one of the gates in the area. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, So anyway, this is a fair amount of lore built up around this. Uh, built up around Toad Road, this magical asylum that you only see at night, something, something. There's a movie that's loosely based on it, very loosely, called Toad Road, which I did see. It was interesting. Not really a horror movie and not really about Toad Road, but we'll get there. And, of course, there's tons of local people trying to kind of get the story artificially lost, uh, explain it away, and say, you know, well, it's named after Hallamshire, England, not Hell. There is no Toad Road. There never was. There was no asylum. Local doctor did put up a gate, but only to keep out trespassers. And I've seen some YouTube videos of the of the gate itself, the first gate, which is kind of a red pipe gate on the side of the road. And if you go back there, well, 
the landowner doesn't like trespassers and he has a gun. I had a quick question about the asylum story because at one point, at least in the Wikipedia article, it says that the asylum burned down and then the surviving inmates were beaten to death and it never addresses why or by whom. I mean, did you find anything out about that? Well, by the search party and I think just kind of fear in the darkness, really. You think they're just, it it seemed more... (laughs) I've got a particularly good version of the story. Let me pull that up. Okay, because that was just, it just sort of stood out at this weird factoid. Like, oh yeah, a lot of people died in the fire. And then the rest, the ones who actually made it through were just beaten to death. You know, I don't, I don't know why they were beaten to death. It's part of the horror story of the moment. I mean, they were in an insane asylum and many of them were dangerous. Many of them were driven mad by the fire is part of the story as well. I mean, if you're dealing with something that's a gate to hell, a certain amount of like crazy carnage is to be expected. I suppose you're right. So one of the things about urban legends is they're really kind of only passed around between, oh gosh, the ages of like 10 and 15, right? Seventh grade is the perfect, my my older brother, blah, 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 right? And violence is always a big thing. It's like if you do this and then the hooks and then they were never seen again, right? The, the, mm-hmm. the claw marks were on the door. He was trying to warn them. The killer was inside the car. Yeah, they're a lot less fun when you start throwing reality at them and historical research and such. It's kind of missing the point. You're, you're trying to terrify your fellow sixth graders and violence is a big thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's, I didn't realize I'd forgotten this. In, again, Northeast Texas, Marshall, Texas, Marshall to kind of Shreveport. Marshall, I know Marshall. It's a, I know. It's a super haunted uh-huh. place. And there's this place called Stagecoach Road. Okay. And being in Marshall and not, or near Marshall, not being able to drive, the, the children that couldn't drive, we talk about driving down Stagecoach Road and how terrifying it was and the ghosts of this and the ghosts of that. And then once you grow up and you get cars and you discover girls and Dairy Queen, you no longer start telling these stories again. And so the violence, they were beaten to death. Well, that's just like, yeah, obviously. This is scary. And then it was scarier. And then random violence, which I just made up because I'm trying to impress you. So you think it's, it's, it, it has to do more with the fact that this is a genre told by children. Yes. Than actual facts or... Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. You're sitting around a campfire. Mm-hmm. You've got s'mores. You shine the flashlight and you're like, ooh, let me tell you a story. Right. Did mm-hmm. I talk about the blue candle yokai ritual? No, but I know about blue candle. I know other blue candle rituals, but please uh, tell me. I'd, I'd done some research on, on yokai, Japanese mysterious monstrous spirits, kind of demon-y, kind of trickstery. And one of the stories, it's kind of the frame narrative for a lot of yokai stories, is the blue candle yokai, Ao Andon. I'm not entirely certain how to pronounce it. Uh, it's an incarnation of fear and terror. It's kind of the spirit of the ghost story. You can summon it, uh, and the way you summon it, and this is a party game, is you'd light you'd light a hundred blue candles and douse them as you tell a story. You tell a ghost story, you douse a candle. You tell a ghost story, you douse a candle or you douse a lantern or something like that. As it gets darker and these candles start casting longer, scarier shadows, the mood gets more and more intense. And the last candle is throwing these monstrous shadows all over the place as people are huddling closer to it. And you snuff it out and you summon the AO Andon at that point. It's the ghost of the lantern who presumably kills everybody or something like that. I don't know. But that and like the saying Bloody Mary over and over again, it's kind of this magic to get you in the mood to appreciate these things. Mm. It's inviting terror into your life. Mm. I don't think urban legends are specifically told to children by children, but you definitely have to be in the right mindset to appreciate that kind of fear. Ooh, this is cool. So it was during the Endo period. Did you already say that? Uh, Edo? Uh, No, I didn't, but I don't know what it means. Oh, Edo period. Sorry. So the Edo period is like 300 years from 1600 to 1870 or so. This is a whole other historical thing about when did Japan become open to the outsiders? It was post this period, right? Because this was when Japan was isolation. Yeah, very closed. Correct? Yeah. Yeah. I think the end of the Edo period was when the Japanese emperor of the time 
kind of took some management ideas from outside, broke down the shogun structure, uh, reconstituted his local officials, and started moving towards a more industrial Japan. So there was like a 70-year period of less isolation, and right. then they kind of became more isolated from like 1910 to the World War II era. Right. So this is kind of like pre, or this is sort of the moment when the Dutch came in, hmm. or like right on the... Yeah, around around that, I think. Okay. Fascinating. Hmm. So the story, you snuff out candles one by one, you you build a mood to appreciate the terror. And again, like this just it's incredibly evocative of East Texas, where you're out there in your Ford F-150. You got your best girl on your bench seat and you're driving down Stagecoach Road and you're telling her, man, last week my cousin saw the goat man last week. We saw the specter of the gal holding the baby. Like she was right there. She was flickering and she gets scared, right? And like, don't worry, babe, I'll protect you. And because it's a bench seat, like we don't have bucket seats in these trucks. She can just slide over and you can put your arm around her and be like, don't worry, I got you. Or start telling the story of Toad Road and the seven gates after you've hopped the first gate and you know the landowners out there with a gun somewhere. That's when you drop the rest of the six gates. Yeah, yeah. Like primed for terror you're, already. You're you're sharing urban legends. Well, one to scare sixth graders, but as you get older and get a few more chemicals in your bloodstream, you know to set the mood. That's that's genius. Uh-huh. Like this is social construct. I'm not trying to scare you. I am trying to scare you. But the reason I'm scaring you is to get you cuddled up closer to me. So it's eros and thanatos. Like yeah. Oh wow. Uh huh. Because San Antonio, the, 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 the corollary is the goat, the railroad tracks where you'd go, you'd make out on the railroad tracks, but you first have dusted the back of your car with baby powder. And at some point, as you're making out, your car rolls off the railroad tracks. You go out, you look, there are fingerprints on your car because the ghost children pushed you off the track. Exactly. Yeah. So, mm-hmm, yeah. And then you make out again. And then you make out again. Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like that it's kind of well-informed because uh, Seven Gates to Hell is also a motif in Ishtar's Descent of the Underworld. It's one of the oldest stories we have. Again, Seven is such a powerful hell number. It is, and I have a really good story about Seven for next time. Okay. So I, I did watch the movie of this, Toad Road, and it, it abandons the horror movie premise entirely except for kind of a very loose frame because it's more about using the gates of hell as a metaphor for losing yourself in drug culture. Mm. And it's a very, a very extreme. It's a very experimental film. A lot of the dialogue was improvised. Most of the actors aren't really actors. They're people that are fond of the drugs playing themselves with some loose framing for plot. The lead actress died of an overdose before the film really got released. Oh my God. Yeah. So it's, it, it uses Toad Road and the idea of the descent into hell as like a question about mental health, about about losing yourself and also inspiration, because, you know, is it hell? Is it heaven? We don't know what's beyond that final gate. No one knows what's beyond that final gate. Mm. And that's the question that the lead female wants to ask herself by by going down the gates and the roads. She believes that through a combination of LSD and finding these doorways, she she can kind of reach some form of inspiration it wasn't really a horror movie it was more of a sort of drug culture psychodrama interesting but it's sort of like a search for enlightenment Mm. like enlightenment can be a term like remarkable it can be both good and bad for the female lead that was the case for the male lead it was mm, scarier Mm. that's not at all what i expected i expected something more like the mothman movie Mm. i need to watch this yeah, it was. It, you, you can borrow my copy. It, it was kind of play, selling itself as Blair Witch style horror, but mm-hmm. it really should not be in the horror section at all. Hmm. Psychological horror, the horror within. It's just it's just mental exploration, really. It's got some tension. It's got some horror elements. Okay. The true horror was the journey. Yes. <laughs> the horror was it's inside you darkness. all along. That's right. The horror is actually colonialism. (laughs) Another kind of seven gates to hell um, just felt related. It felt so close that I didn't want to really touch on it was a series of 
uh, bridges in Collinsville, Illinois, that if you drove under them, you would, uh, if you drove through them in order at midnight, there's a challenge there, you'd be greeted by hellhounds and a gate to hell would open up. So that was kind of neat. And there's a video of someone trying to drive them. And it was mosquitoes. The hellhounds <laughs> are mosquitoes. Mm, I thought that was Minnesota. Valid. Oh, I forgot. Maybe it was a different one that I watched, but the girls are talking about the how they got to the seventh gate and it was they were just being eaten alive. This was in the outtakes. If you looked at the outtakes, they were being eaten alive by mosquitoes. Okay. It's uh-huh. it's valid. So true. Mm-hmm. I mean, why not, right? Like like pestilence, right? Like that's a thing. They're they're blood sucking sucking monsters. And you can tell that yeah. you can tell they're monsters because a breaded and fried mosquito is not delicious. Oh my god. <laughs> Exactly, would you Get see? Stuck in this your teeth. works. This works. I, this I now, works. I now have a definition that I didn't have before. Oh my god! See, we're doing important work here. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to have another episode. We're going to continue on on these urban legends and what we're going to do. But to end this one, I just want to say I got a recommended link to the Pope Lick Monster. I haven't clicked it. <laughs> I haven't. <laughs> Use incognito. Pope. P-O-P-E. Yeah, Pope Lick, as in, like, applying tongue to the papal figure. I haven't clicked it. (laughs) And I want you, if you want to, to click it and read it before I do, because we'll circle around back to this one. We'll go over it. But just the fact that there's a Pope Lick monster, what does that even mean? I'm clicking clicking now. Nope, 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 nope. Don't don't ruin it for me. Oh, I'm so excited. Oh. It's probably going to be pretty boring, like how to get shot in the Vatican. But who knows? Somebody might have licked the Pope. No, it's just over Pope Lick Creek. You now, the real story for me. The real story is why is there a Pope Lick Creek in Kentucky? Mm. Oh, my God. And this this fits in because Jason's from Kentucky. Maybe he can also help us with this when he comes on. Um, the Pope Lick monster is kind of hot. No, 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 no. Like if you if you, you have a thing for Krampus, you're going to like this guy. <gasps> well, I feel like Pope Lick is a good companion to my voodoo tale. Ooh, and I'm looking forward to that one. Uh-huh. God, he's Because he doesn't love voodoo. I have a new cryptid crush. Oh, oh, cryptic crushes. I feel like this is, we need to, we could totally recreate, and again, merch idea, we redo the game, um, mystery date, and it's all with cryptids. Ladies and gentlemen, on that note, it was an absolute blast. We'll see you in hell. (laughs) (laughs) I'll see you in a bit. Oh, he's hot. (laughs) Oi. This podcast is copyright 2021 by The Dispatchist and its Creative Commons. You're welcome to reuse with attribution. Look for us on your favorite podcast app. Say hi to us on Twitter or Gmail at The Dispatchist, no spaces. Check out our website, dispatch.ist, for more episodes, show notes, and a variety of hellish resources.